everyone has watched the horrific images coming out of Afghanistan, Kabul, and the images of people trying to get across the fence and being hidden, stopped, brings back haunting images from our recent history, people trying to get out of Europe. In advanced officer training, I, um, at my very old age, had to write a paper <laughs> about the morality of individual versus when it conflicts with your moral conscience, with what the platoon that you're engaged in in order to do stuff. What does one do and how does one go through that thinking process? The war tried to kill us in the spring. These were the opening words of Kevin Powers' elegiac and darkly beautiful novel of the war in Iraq. The Yellow Birds is the name of the book. As with all great writing about war and human conflict, such as All Quiet on the Western Front, The Red Badge of Courage, this book's focus is not on the battlefield maneuvers and strategy or tactics or even the confrontation with enemy soldiers, but rather on the issues of personal responsibility and morality. How does war affect the human soul, which brings us to our Parsha, Ki Seitzei when you go out to war. About uh, eight years ago, we commemorated the centennial of the beginning of the First World War. Since that war to end all wars, the United States has fought five major wars, including our terminating one in Afghanistan. And the State of Israel has been engaged in armed conflict throughout its entire existence. And our situation finds a parallel in biblical history. Uh, the book of Shoftim makes a point of recording that the land was at peace for 40 years in Judges 3 and Judges 5 and for 80 years and for 40 years, as if to emphasize that such interludes were few and far between. And I think that there was a golden age of America after the Second World War through to the recent times till 9-11. I think that was a golden age. The land was at peace. Surely it is worth a moment to reflect not on the various justifications offered for the numerous wars and getting out of war, but rather on the spiritual impact on those who bear the burden of battle, as well as on those who wait at home for their return. So the opening line of our Pasha raises an interesting question. When you go out to war, why does the Torah say when you go out to war against your enemies? The phrase against your enemies, al-oivecho, the word al-oivecho is redundant. It's superfluous. Armies always go to war against enemies. Who else would they go to war against? And the fact that it says al-oivecho referred here is not the opponents on the battlefield, but as the Rishonim we will learn, Al-Oyvecho, your enemy, the enemy within you, the Yetzirah, the selfish inclination, the tendency within us to free ourselves from God's insistence on moral conduct, regardless of the circumstances. That is the enemy with which we must do battle during times of war. In this internal battle, brother, for the preservation of our moral compass, we have two critical weapons, according to Chazal. Our compassion and our unwavering commitment uh, to the Torah and the Halakha. Although at one time we in the United States were, as Israel has been for all its existence, 
a nation of citizen soldiers. In fact, I am part of a citizen uh, militia called the Indiana Guard Reserve. It is a citizen militia from the beginning till now. Today, not only are most of us far removed from the front lines, but we give much little thought to the realities of the wars that are fought in our name. But in difference to the suffering caused by war, even the suffering of one's enemies hardens the heart of a society just like it hardens the heart of an individual. I remember well in 82 during the war in the Falklands or Malvinas Islands, my greatest chief rabbi, who I think remains the greatest chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rabbi Lord Emmanuel Jacobowitz, who was a personal mentor to me, displayed great courage, but also perfectly reflected Judaism's insistence on maintaining compassion when he publicly declared, even terrorists have mothers and we must not be indifferent to their anguish. In the midst of World War I, another rabbi who I have only the utmost contempt for, Rabbi Stephen Wise, asked, can we win the war without losing America? This was in 1917. Can we win the war without losing America? And that question has reverberated through our history. From the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus during the Civil War to the internment of Japanese America's citizens to World War II to the pervasive surveillance of private communications today and now the seeming indifference of the Biden administration to the plight of those who helped us for 20 years, we have repeatedly faced the question, how much moral compromise does war demand? That is the struggle implicit in the opening verse of our Parsha, for it is true that when a nation takes the field in war, it also confronts an inner enemy, and that confrontation too will decide the nation's fate. Now, I would like to point out that the placement of our Parsha, the beginning of our Parsha, Kiseitzi Lamilchoma, there is actually a disagreement as to whether to locate the section concerning the Eishes Yafas Toar, right? Kiseitzi Lamilchoma Aloyevecha, when you go out to battle against your enemy, and you see among the captives a beautiful captive maiden. There's a disagreement where to locate the section concerning the Ashes Yafas Torah. Between those who divided the Torah into chapters, remember this is merely chapter 21, verse 10, with verse 10 into chapter 21, and those who divided into parshiot, my shver Oliver Sholem felt that the division of the Bible into chapters was done by the monks in the Christian church, not by Chazal. And many times he would show me that the choice of choosing the end of a chapter and the beginning of a chapter was always to the detriment of Am Yisrael. It had an anti-Semitic flavor. <laughs> And the question was, is it, do we go like with the chapters? Then Kiseitse should have opened up 10 verses ago. Or do we open up with this parsha, Kiseitse Lam Now, at first glance, it seems that the division into chapters is correct. The section concerning an Ashes Yafas Toar seems to be part of the series of sections dealing with the laws of war. 
which we can easily chronologically sequence according to the unit progressions. And if I can show that to you, chapter 20, who goes out to fight? Those who are rach levav, they've just got married, they don't go out to fight. Then 20, a call for peace. When you, when you start war, you send a message of peace before fighting. Then three, the siege of a town. Four, the Egla Rufa, finding a corpse. And five, when you finally are victorious in war and you find a beautiful captive maiden. It looks like the chapters should be in sequence and that's the way to do it, linguistically as well. The section concerning Aishas Yifas Torah belongs to the linguistic style of the unit of the laws of Milchoma. Kiseitze la Milchoma. Kiseitze. There are three times where Kiseitze is mentioned. In the section following that of Aishas Yifas Torah, that is the Ben Sora Omora, the, the, the despised son, or the despised wife and the beloved wife, the scripture speaks in the third person. If a man has two wives, then it shall be this. If a man has a stubborn, rebellious son. And so linguistically, that's separate. Maybe the Pasha should have started there. When you draw nigh to a city to fight, then proclaim peace. When you besiege a city and many others. So it's, it, it really implies that the our Pasha goes along linguistically, stylistically, with what went on before it. Both the substantive sequence and the linguistic expression indicate that the division into chapters which associates the section concerning Aishas Yafas Torah is correct. However, however, <laughs> however, when we examine the matter in greater depth, we see that the division of the Torah into Parshiot is indeed correct. Despite the gap in the form of linguistic expression, there is a correspondence between the linguistic style of the section concerning Aishas Yafas Torah and the sections that follow. The linguistic use of the second person in Ki Seitze where you go out into war, is the same as, and you see among a captive woman of goodly form, it's the individual, not the collective. You have a good wife and a hated wife. You have a rebellious son. And so the transition between the Torah's appeal to the individual and its previous appeal to the collective begins with our section of Aishas Yafas Torah. Now, Rashi is one of the commentators who clearly connects the section dealing with Aishas Yifas Torah to the sections that follow. He makes the Midrashic connection of the two. And Rashi says, then you will take her for a wife. You will take her for a wife. It says, V'shovisa shivyo, v'roisa b'shivya Aishas Yifas Torah, v'choshaktabo, you desire her. And you take her for a wife. And Rashi is giving us a warning here. You will take her to yourself for a wife. The Torah spoke against the selfish instinct. Because if God wouldn't have made her permissible, he still would have married her. He has a Yetzirah. He's in battle. 
and he's going to grab her. Avil im And if he marries her, what's going to be? Sofo lios snoa. He goes to the next parsha in which a man has a beloved wife and a hated wife. He says, you know, that comes because you followed your selfish instinct. and You just grabbed her and married her. This is what's going to happen. She's going to become hated. Shenema acharov kisiyeno leish. A man has two wives, one beloved and one hated. And not only that, sofo leholid mi mena ben soro mora. In the end, he's going to have a, a, a rebellious and wayward son. That's why the parshios are juxtaposed. Now, Rashi is quoting the Tanchuma to explain the, the juxtaposition. We'll come back to that. Rashi views the section as opening a series of negative scenarios. One, two, three. Yefastor is a negative scenario. And the only reason it's permissible is because... We're in the heat of war, and the Torah has given us some kind of dispensation. But Rashi is telling us, but remember, this is followed consecutively by two dark scenarios that may well, because of the smicha of the Parshias, mean that one causes the other. A theological interpretation of Rashi's dazzling uh, reading leads us to a far-reaching spiritual conclusion. The Torah sees fit to permit that which should otherwise be prohibited because it understands that overcoming the temptation is too difficult. The Torah speaks only in view of the Yetzirah, of the man's selfish instinct. And Rashi's fundamental assumption, according to which the sections that follow are a continuation of the Yefas Torah, has implications for his entire uh, interpretation. For instance, and you shall let her nail. Well, it says, we don't know what that word means. Some say you let her nails grow ugly. Some say uh, you actually pare her nails to make her look good. It's a big machloik between Ramban and Rambam and Rashi. But Rashi says, the reason that you shall do her nails is that she shall become repulsive. Rambam and Ramban say, no, she's going to become Jewish. She has to be pruned. She has to be transitioned into being Jewish. And Rashi then says, and she shall remove the raiment of her captivity. The reason is because these are fine clothes. For the women of heathen peoples adorn themselves in times of war in order to lure the soldiers to unchastity. And she shall dwell in your house, not in the women's quarters, but in the house where you continually use. <laughs> Rashi says, when you walk in, you bump into her. <laughs> and when you leave, she knocks up against you. And he sees her endlessly crying for her father and sees her neglected appearance. And all this is in order so that she shall become repulsive to him. And she shall weep for her father and her mother a full month. Why? in order to make a contrast that while the Jewish woman is happy, she should be downhearted. While the Jewish woman adorns herself, this one should be neglected in appearance. And this shall be, if you are not pleased with her, the scripture tells you that you will in the end hate her. This is Rashi's continuing that same concept that this is a negative understanding of um, the whole Yifas Torah. Our good friend, the amazing Rashi, HaKadosh, 
does something amazing with this passage. That the Torah is saying something subtler than capture women, but at least be more dignified about it. Rashi links this passage with the hated wife and the rebellious son. And the rabbis say this never actually happened, right? We never, there was never a case, the Gemara says, of a Ben Surah and Mora in Gemara and Sanhedrin. But Rashi says that taking a woman in war will eventually lead her becoming the unloved wife and the children from this union will become rebellious children. Now, we had this just in case you think that this is all theoretical. Encountering passages like this, which again challenge our ethical intuition about forced marriage or the execution of juveniles, for example, this is not unexpected for students of Torah who are at least honest about their own sense of morality and are not trying to do an art scroll whitewash. But it remains disconcerting. Sometimes we dwell on these challenges, trying to find a way out. But just as often, if my experience is any guide, we shunt the, the trouble and the passage aside and move on. But let's look at the Midrash more closely. Rashi is very selective about which part of the Tanhumer he chose. Now let's go back to that Tanhumer. The Tanhumer in Kiseitze follows up its explanation with the juxtaposition of an example of when this happened. This isn't just a moral exhortation. The Tanhuma, written in the 5th century, is looking back at the whole of Tanakh and saying, wait a minute, we've had a case like this. And says, for we so find with David, because he lusted after Maaka, the daughter of Talmi, the king of Geshur, when he went out to war. He saw Yephastoar himself. And who was the product of that? Absalom. Absalom was the very product that Rashi is warning us about of the child of just lusting after anyone in war who sought to kill him. That's the ultimate Ben Soro Mora, right? He kills the father. The warrior who failed to control his battlefield urges is none other than Melech David. And Absalom is the resulting rebellious son. According to the Rabbonim, Gomorrah and Sanhedrin 21, Avshalom is not the only child David bore with a beautiful captive wife. Rav Yehuda states in the name of Rav, and I quote, David HaMelech had 400 children and all born of Yefasetoa, beautiful wives. They all grew a blorit. Now, a blorit, when I went to yeshiva, if my hair grew a little bit too long, the mashgiach would come and grab it and said, get out and go and get a haircut and come back to the base medrash. A blorit is a kind of a Gentile hairstyle in the Gomorrah. Uh, but for us people, it's something that would be interfering between the tefillin shel rosh and the head. And they all drove in golden carriages. They used to march at the head of the troops and were the strong men, the Iraqi guard. These were the strong men. These were the mafia for David Amelech, the Bale Egrafot of the house of David. The text carries a hint of braggadocio. See how many women the great warrior David accumulated. See how many sons his father. See how many wealthy sons his sons were. At the same time, the description 
of the sons is a critique. They sported a blorit, a hairstyle that for the rabbis signals association with corrupt heathen culture, as we're told in the Gemara in Sota 47. The sons are described as bale egrofot, men of fist and egrofa, but it's an appellation that connotes reliance on brute force and not without a hint of bullying. Even if the sons are using their fist powers for the good of the king, the image of marauding bands of princelings living richly recalls their origin. These sons of beautiful captives were conceived on a battlefield where their father should have exercised self-control, rather than listening to his Yetzirah, his selfish inclination. The warrior who must have the beautiful woman he sees fathers from her sons who meet the world in an acquisitive mode, fist drawn. What about all the women? We haven't talked about the women in all of this. A very troublesome narrative about the treatment of women as captives and chattel for any feminist reader of literature. The captive wife seems little more than a foil for the virtues or follies of the husband by force. But that changes in the next line of the same passage in Sanhedrin. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Tamar was also a daughter of Yefastoah. Tamar, the great Tamar. Tamar, Absalom's full sister, was no rebel. In 2 Samuel 13, she serves her half-brother Amnon at their father's command only to have him rape her. Despite her pleading, don't, brother, don't force me. Please speak to the king. He will not refuse me to you. Tamar seeks to avoid the shame of rape by offering to marry her attacker, an exchange that recalls the rabbinic reading of our Yefas Toar, the Lokachta Le'isha, as a deal making with the Yetzirah. She seeks to regularize an undesired union through marriage, where the likely alternative is not abstinence, but an even worse abuse. Amnon refuses and rapes her without even the courtesy of a coerced marriage. Amnon overpowers Tamar, his own sister, without any of the safeguards the Torah puts in place for an enemy captive. And as Rashi and the Tanchuma predict, his lust gives way to hatred, not after years of marriage, the way Rashi implies, but immediately. As it says in Shmuel Base 13, then Amnon hated her with a great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her immediately, get up and get out. For the captive woman, being sent out is no longer desired. It's supposed to be some sort of kindness. After all, she's been through. At least she'll not be slowed into slavery, as it says in our Parsha. But for Tamar, she went her way, crying aloud as she went, and eventually settled desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Combining the two statements of Rav Yehuda in the name of Rav, we have David's daughter from a captive wife experiencing similar trauma to her mother. Indeed, in some ways worse, because Amnon denies her the protections afforded to an alien captive. Meanwhile, David's 400 sons from captive wives run amok, engaging 
in minor versions of the same, swaggering through life, taking what they want by force. But it is Amnon himself, the king's firstborn, and not the son of a captive wife, whose behavior replicates and exaggerates the worst elements of the Yafastoah scenario for his half-sister. By identifying the rapacious soldier of our with David and then playing out the consequences of David Amelech's action over the next generation, these texts raise hard questions about cycles of violence. David's sons reenact their father's violence and lack self-control. Here, perhaps, like the Gomorrah, like Rashi, it's telling a morality tale. A father who behaves badly cannot expect better from his sons. So be careful, fathers. Indeed, Amnon, despite his own parents' union, being apparently untainted by the state, the taint of Yefastor, acts out a horrifying caricature of the Yefastor scenario against his own sister. Even more troubling is the fate of David's daughter, Ma'aka, Ma'aka's daughter, the choicelessness that marked Ma'aka's marriage, which we might naively think stems from its inception in war, would seem inapposite to Tamar's life. She's the daughter of a victorious warrior, a princess in a stable politic with the fancy clothes to prove it. And yet her choicelessness of her sexual assault finds the well-kept princess in the city as it is found her mother on the battlefield. This whole morality tale contains a kind of logic, some story as to how the son's negative traits are formed by the family origins. But the story of Tamar is the opposite. Now listen carefully. No matter what she did or who she was, she could become a victim of sexual violence. Unlike her half-brothers, Tamar's reenactment of the Yafastoa cycle has nothing to do with her own choice the way it does with the soldier's choice in Kiseitse Lamilchoma. It was taught in the name of Yeshua ben Korchach. Tamar established a great fence at that time because she cried publicly. As a result of her crying publicly, the people said, if such an occurrence could happen to the daughter of a king, all the more so to the daughters of ordinary people. If such an occurrence could happen to a modest woman, all the more it could happen to a licentious woman. And Tamar therefore exposed the bitter truth that sexual assault can happen to anyone, even the modest daughter of the king. So actions have consequences. What's done cannot be done. And where does that leave us in this age of morality stories going to war, going to endless wars. In our Pasha, the captive woman is given space to weep for her family in her captor husband's house, but is otherwise silent. Tamar leave Amnon's house wailing aloud in public and verbally confirms to Absalom what has happened. The Gemara Sanhedrin 21 tells us they cast Tamar and her public grief as a catalyst for greater awareness. Furthermore, according to Chazal, Amnon's assault on Tamar led the Chachamim 
in Sanhedrin, saying, going back retroactively, to enact legal changes, a prohibition on seclusion with a married woman, for instance. That happened then, intending to prevent similar incidents in the future. Unlike her mother, Tamar is the king's daughter, a status that was not enough to protect her from violence, but at least brought her some after-the-fact concern. And that concern, according to Chazal, led to the prophylactic action to protect not only other princesses, but all ordinary women. I think that that's a great story that Rashi didn't dip into. We had to dig into where Rashi got it from. It got it from that Tanchuma. I want to end up, as I always do, with internalizing what does it mean that Rashi is telling us that it is a, a license to the soldier to give in to the Yetzirah. And I want to share with you a dazzling Daigle, because Daigles are always dazzling. <laughs> and the Daigle says, following the Baal Shem Tov, And I think this is deep shut, because the fact that we're already told by Rashi that this Oyevecho isn't the one outside, but it's the inner one, it's the Oyev within, it's the Yetzirah, I think that Hasidus is just picking up on that. It's not coming out with anything new. It's picking up on Midrash Tanchuma. It's picking up on this idea that, that we make concessions to the Yetzirah in battle. And now he takes this as the Milchoma that occurs to every person every day in his battle against his Yetzirah. So he's taken it from the historical and the cosmic down to the internal. Now, the problem is, what does the next clause say? One second. You're going to battle against the enemy. It should then say, and you fight the good fight. It doesn't. It says, and God makes you victorious. Very problematic. You didn't do anything. You're going to war and you're already victorious. Now, the Yismach Yisrael, the Alexander Rebbe, says something beautiful on that. He says, you might think that the function of going into war is to win the battle. And he says, no. When you're going against the Oyev, when you're fighting the inner battle of the Yetzirah, when you are fighting the addict within, that is a never-ending battle for as long as you live till the moment you die. So don't think that I'm going to put this off, I'll fix this, I'm going to work on it, I'm going to do it because this battle is continuous. It's an ongoing battle. So then what's What's the victory? So he implies that the victory is what? All you have to do is the struggle. All you have to do is go into the struggle and the Eivishter will make you victorious. Why? Here's the deep psychological point that the victory is the struggle. The victory is the struggle because the Torah doesn't talk about the battle. It's going into battle, preparing for battle, struggling to, to go to battle. Then you get the victory. The Daigal takes it even one step further. It's like the Alexandra. He goes, Hainu, take care of Kashiyye Isarusa de la Tata. 
the moment you have a hirhur of tshuva, the moment that you have this opening of light to realizing your struggles, then the Avishtu, by definition, will make you victorious because he just wants that hisarusa de la tata. He wants you to make that first move. We should learn from all of this that this battle is an ongoing battle, whether it's against the Yafas Toa within, whether it's the Yetzahara within. And it says, you shall wait a Yerach Yomim. The Avodas Yisrael, the Koshnitz Magid says, because Bachsa Avihavesya Ema Yerach Yomim. The word, it should be Chodesh Yomim. What's Yerach? Dehainu Kol Chodesh Elul. There's an auspicious time for doing this inner work of Okay, the rest of the year it's not so urgent, but now we're coming up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, so this Yerach Yomim that she is crying, she isn't she, she is you, you're the one that must be crying. The crying is a kind of grieving that we have to do as we go through this process of tshuva, this includes this kind of weeping. Weeping is a sacred text. I once wrote a poem. <laughs> weeping for the lost opportunities, weeping for our lost life, for our lost everything, right? Weeping because of our sins, we were separated from our father, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and our mother, the Shechina, Knesset Yisrael. We should all be able to go through this time, which is auspicious for weeping, for auspicious for self-reflection, and both on the individual level, on the macro level, on the national level, we need to really look at how we are treating those who have helped us uh, during our wars. Have a wonderful week.